Hey, welcome to the Ask a Pastor podcast. We're going to spend some time answering, uh, going deep onto one question. And uh, if you have questions, please feel free to send them in, and we'd love to get to those in the podcast. Today, uh, or the day that this is airing, is New Year's Day. So yes. I'd like to hear from both of you. Uh, do you have New Year's Day traditions? Happy New Year, fellas. Happy New Year. To you as well. <laughs> What's your tradition for New Year's? Just, oh, uh, man. When I was a kid, my parents always used to rent a movie, and we would watch a movie together on New Year's Eve. And the only movie that I remember specifically watching was White Fang, and I remember crying because the dog died, and I was just devastated. Oh, spoiler alert. A real animal lover. (laughs) Oh, there you go. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) How about you, Joel? Um, New Year's Day. I, I am a, a, a sauerkraut fan. So is that, is that like a normal thing where you guys are from that you eat sauerkraut on New Year's Day? My wife it's tried to introduce that to our family <laughs> and my kids vetoed it. <laughs> Some so. good probiotics in there, right? That's right. Um, and except I'm pretty adamant about silver floss, which is in a can. So there's no probiotics. I think that's how that works. That sounds like expensive floss. I, <laughs> It's something. <laughs> Other than that, no, we just hang out at home. How about you guys? We, for years, uh, did the leave New Year's Eve drives to a place and um, stay overnight and then ski on New Year's Day because oh, a lot wow. of people were gone. And it, it, there was uh, it was fun, obviously, just to take the kids and do that. Yeah. Um, but it was also part of my... Uh, parenting strategy of not having them want to go out on other places on New Year's Eve. So it was provide something more exciting okay. rather than just sitting around and mm. having them say, I'm going to go over here, go there. Wise play. Uh, so that was our that was our thing. So it became a tradition, uh, but it's kind of started to die with my wife's back. Skiing isn't really uh, okay. a thing right now. So, so I'm not sure what we're going to do this year, but that has been our okay. tradition for probably about seven, eight years. All right. Yeah. That's a good tradition. No no sleeping away hangovers, right? No. I don't think I've made it to midnight for probably five to eight years now. I'm getting old. I'm probably with you in that. <laughs> you guys stay up till midnight? Um, most of the time. Okay. Sometimes not. Depends on what all's going on. Uh, when our kids were young, especially, we did not. But I think two years ago. Last year. Last year, we definitely did. Stayed up, saw fireworks. Uh, and yeah, it's cool. Yeah, what we've tried to do is be like the first out on the ski hill because everyone else is sleeping off their hangover. Okay. And so you get a couple hours of almost nobody on the slopes on a holiday, which is kind of fun. Oh, wow. Good. All right, so we got uh, a question to go deep on for uh, New Year's Day. Um, We're talking about mega churches, micro churches, and multi-site churches. So we could probably spend a lot of time talking about this. Um, I guess I'd like to first hear... Uh, tell us about your sort of the size of the church that you went to. That was your sort of first experience of church. Mm. You go first. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad's a Presbyterian minister, and uh, primarily in Western Pennsylvania, small towns. And so the majority of my growing up was in churches of you know somewhere between 100 and 250, 300 people. Okay, and. Uh, I got to see a variety of church contexts, really enjoyed growing up in those churches and the opportunity that I had in a smaller church to really get to know people at a closer level. Uh, You know, growing up in a church where your dad's the pastor, you don't have much of a say on where you're going on a Sunday morning. 
But uh, I had a great experience growing up in the church. And, you know, when my wife and I got married and we had the opportunity to choose churches for ourselves, we have chosen to be in some churches that were similar in size yeah. uh, and other churches that are very different. Hmm. And we found all, all those different expressions of the church to be meaningful in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. How about you guys? I, I uh, grew up going to a church that was fairly big. I mean, 800 or so people. Um, and, uh, and it had a school. And so, so that was just always normal for me. Um, when I was in college, I was a part of a house church for three years, which was an interesting experience. Um, in Chicago, went to uh, Willow Creek for a season. Um, so that was uh, like a Saturday night thing while uh, at a church of about 100. So, um, so I feel like I've been in a lot of those different, uh, different sizes. Um, and all of them have been interesting and unique. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of variety growing up as well. Uh, my parents kind of did church. So there was a large church in there, kind of what you'd probably call a mega church. There was a medium sized church and probably a smaller church. Yeah. And then there was some house church, uh, and then there was no church. Hmm. So we kind of hit all the spectrum as I was uh, growing up. Yeah. What do you see as uh, what? Let's let's start here. If you were to give somebody a piece of advice on, you know, I'm I'm looking for a church. You know, should I should I seek out a small church or a big church? What would you What would you say to them? I don't know that there's a preferred answer to that. I think there's benefits to both uh, opportunities. So yeah. I don't. I wouldn't say the size of the church <clears throat> should be the driver. I would say you should be more driven by doctrine. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of times people look at churches as what are the services they provide, and mm -hmm. then they categorize them. Either large has all kinds of services, small has better community, yeah. which by the way, that's not necessarily true hmm. uh, as a distinction. Um, you can be in a small church that doesn't have great community. You can be in a big church that doesn't provide some of the same ministries mm -hmm. or services that are important. And uh, so, so I would say start with doctrine, start with mission. Mm -hmm. um, those things, are, are you like-minded with the people who are already there? Uh, that's probably a more important driver in my mind than size. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, I think that with the whole big church versus small church conversation, you know, starting off, I mean, the church is, first of all, the people of God gathered together. Yeah. And so it's not primarily, are we showing up to this big building, this small building, a big organization or a small organization? It's the gathering of these people who are saying, we want to follow after God and live life together as a community uh, based around a set of values that are biblical. Yeah. Um, looking to see what is the church meant to be about? We're a community where we uh, show the, the world around us uh, how the gospel changes things, God's grace in our lives changes things for us. Yeah. We're a community of people who want to support one another, um, who want to be on mission together. And so I think it's really those values, like you said, Kurt, it's the values that I would encourage people to look for. A hmm. uh, community of people who say, you know, we want to base all that we do around uh, God's values in uh, being a people who are centered around grace and also people who just enjoy living life together. Yeah. Um, when you show up to a church and you're like, man, I don't really know that anyone noticed I'm here. That's yeah. a real bummer, whether yeah. it's a small church or a big church. Mm -hmm. And so being a part of a community where people really value relationships as part of the way in which we grow, I think is something that's essential to me. Yeah. Orchard Hills, obviously a, a larger church, um, but in the strip district, uh, we're a smaller, uh, campus. And so I'll often have people come, 
um, on Sundays and they'll, you know, just tell them their story of how they ended up there. Uh, they'll say they went to a bunch of churches or they came from another church and it just felt like it was too big to them. Um, and so they like the experience of the small church. Um, but I think you've made a really good point that the size isn't going to dictate the size is going to dictate how you feel, but not necessarily whether or not you're experiencing real community. And when I think back to being in that house church, I would say my community was probably no different than it is today. Like I have, you know, the same level of, of, of deep relationships that are supportive. Um, and so, um, and so that size does create some sort of feeling. Well, community is more about what you invest than it is the size of the room. In other words, if you show up and you invest in people's lives, you're part of groups uh, serving, Hmm. you'll have community. If you don't, you won't, regardless of the size. What size does, smaller size gives the illusion of community Hmm. faster. Okay. And so you walk into a church that's smaller and you say, well, I saw these people here last week. I said, hello, I know their name now. I feel more a sense of community. Whereas a large church like Orchard Hill Wexford, you can walk in and out and feel like you don't see the same people yeah. for multiple weeks. And so you can be more anonymous if you choose to be. Hmm. And and there's there's pluses and minuses to both. But but I, I think it's an illusion of community. I've, I've had a chance just over my life as a pastor. The first church I pastored as a lead pastor was about 100 people when I went there. And it grew to be a large church by the time I was done. So I had kind of the chance to to live in it as a church of 100, 200, 300, 600, 800, yeah. um, and so on. And, and so I, I feel like I understand the different sizes. Mm. And when you get to be 200 people, you really don't know everybody there mm. anyway. Um, it's an illusion. Um, at 100 people, you can kind of know everybody, know who they are. Mm. And so at some point that that changes anyway. Yeah. Um, and you have to get in a small group, smaller group in order to have real community. Yeah. At some point, regardless of the size of the church and even in a house church, you know, 20 people. Um, are you really going to have a hmm. deep conversation with all 20 people and know what's really happening in all of their lives? Probably not. You probably yeah. still need a smaller group. Yeah. And so even in something that small, I'm not sure that, that that's there. The, the hard part from a church leadership standpoint is, is the assimilation process. And mm. what I found is, is about 300 people, it became really hard to assimilate. Hmm compared to before that. Up until then, it was, it was, hey, there's a new person. Hey, I'm Kurt, and yeah. um, have I introduced you to so-and-so? And yeah. hey, we have all these things going on. Um, about 300, you had to have systems. Hmm. You had to work at it in a whole different way to help people uh, come in. And it took then people um, wanting to, to assimilate. Yeah. Whereas before that, it just kind of happened. And so, and so that's the, the advantage probably of saying I'm going to a smaller church Yeah, is you feel like I'm going to be known more quickly. Sure. Uh, whereas in a bigger church, you have to probably make some decision, but there's some advantages to the bigger. Uh, like one thing I love at Orchard Hill Wexford is I'm always meeting new people who 
in many cases have been here for years hmm. and I think, wow, these are awesome people that I would love to spend time with. Sometimes in a smaller church, you you feel like, ah, I already, already had dinner with them. I yeah. know them. Um, and I, whereas here, there's there's an endless um, group of people that I would love to get to know. Yeah. You know, I think that sometimes we can attach value to the model that we are familiar with. Yeah. And in a small church, it's easier to build familiarity with people. And like you said, sometimes that can give an illusion of depth to relationships where maybe we would feel like if we lost that, we'd really be missing out. You know, the first time uh, my wife and I chose a church for ourselves, after we got married, we moved to the state of Tennessee and we chose a church for ourselves. And it was a church that we probably never would have seen ourselves at. Mm -hmm. Um, We were kind of shocked by how much we liked it. When we showed up, there were about 75 people gathering. Uh, The pastor would stand in the middle of a circle of chairs and he would preach from the middle. And we were like, oh man, this is going to be weird. But when we showed up, we were like, wow, we, you know, it was kind of cool to face people and to see faces when we were seeing, when we were singing, uh, to see faces when we were hearing Mm -hmm. the word. Mm -hmm. We really enjoyed it actually. And we found in that small, in that small setting, when you build familiarity, if you're willing to take that extra step and actually make those, uh, you know, uh, acquaintances, yeah. a relationship by yeah. spending some more time together and really going deeper in conversation, that can be a real advantage. However, the challenge that we saw is that as the church grew and the time we were there over those three years, it went from about 75 or 80 people up to 400 people who had been there from the beginning started to become really frustrated. Interesting. They were like, oh, this church, we started on community and now we've sold out. Look <laughs> at all these people, you know? We all used to gather in and we all knew each other. And now mm. we have greeters. We have people who are, um, you know, standing at the 300. door. They had to get some systems in place and it didn't feel the same. It, it didn't feel to- as organic. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you can't be as organic. Hmm. There as, was as more you of an effort. Right. Because we had to so that people who are new could feel welcomed and then they could be invited into relationships as well. Yeah. It's a lot harder to do. And the problem is that some people attached a value to that form of community that they had experienced in the past. Instead of saying, hey, we're still a church that loves the gospel. We love one another and we want to give everyone a place to belong. They thought, man, 75 was where it's at. And now that we're at 400... Oh man, if they didn't like 400, how are they going to feel walking to a church at 2000? Yeah. And I certainly don't think we're in the wrong direction. Yeah. You know, being a church that is our size. Yep. I think one of the challenges is that in a in a church of, you know, a few hundred, you have this experience of uh, you go, you experience a church, you make your decision about whether you're going to come back. And and if you decide to come back, it's not hard to to get to know a couple of people and to remember a couple names and you feel like uh, you can sort of expand the circle of people that you know, right? Like uh, I know some people there. And then it feels like the next step into a life group or something where you're you know, really experiencing community isn't that hard. I think the challenge that we experience in, in large churches is that people uh, ha- have a hard time finding that sort of medium-sized community where Mm -hmm. someone knows me, I know a group of people, uh, I know a person in the same profession as me. And, and so what we try to do is we try to put people, um, you know, straight from I'm new here into here's a life group of 12 people, uh, go to their living room and share your secrets with them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, And that's just a hard, hard transition. So what advice do you give to people on how do you, how do you, 
even start to be known before you're ready to jump into a group. Yeah. You know, this is a big part of what my role is here at Orchard Hill to help people find a place to connect yeah. in relationships, because that's when people come into the church and they actually continue to participate in the life of the church yeah. rather than showing up to church as an event mm. to become a part of the community. It's really about finding a place to build those relationships. And so when I meet someone who's new, I'm, I'm thinking about what do we have on the calendar that I can invite them to? What groups do we have going on that I can help them engage in, not because I wanna boost participation numbers, but because I wanna help them find relationships with yeah. people who can get to know them, who can support them and encourage mm -hmm. them and challenge them to grow wherever they are in their journey of faith. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think for most of us, when we would talk about the things that have been most influential in our development spiritually, um, man, I've heard a lot of great sermons in my day, but I'm not like, man, I remember this one sermon. That's what changed it all for me. When I think about the most influential moments in my faith, I think of people. Yeah, I think of conversations. And so um, as much as I love to you know, share messages and work on them, I know that as a minister, I've got to help people connect in relationships and in yeah. community because that's oftentimes what makes the most impact on someone in their spiritual development. Yeah, yeah. So in a life group, we're trying to get maybe a dozen or so people that are in a group together. Uh, you're a life stage pastor. So what, uh, what's like the, the number that you'd put on the number of people that are in the life stage that you're trying to reach? Yeah, in a specific involved group? In your group, in yeah. your life stage. Yeah, so my life stage, I've got about 200 people who are really engaged. And for us, what we think about, you know, when we talk about engagement, what I'm saying is this person has said, man, I'm really here. I'm participating. Yeah. This is my community. And so that means they're serving in one way or they're involved in a life group, uh, Bible study, or some sort of ministry where it requires a regular participation yeah. in the community life. And so uh, when it comes to young adults, oftentimes those are people who move here to the city of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm for jobs fresh out of college, or maybe they've moved here for a job, second job out of school, and they kind of feel like, I'm in this big city, yeah. I don't really know anyone, I wanna make friends, faith has always been a part of my life, I'm here because I wanna grow and because I wanna find community. Yeah. And we also find a lot of people here at Orchard Hill who are young couples, who are looking to get to know other couples. Right. It can be an intimidating thing to graduate from college and you feel like up until this point, my life has been mapped out before me. Mm -hmm. I always knew what the next step would be. And you graduate and you're like, okay, now I'm an adult. Like, what do I do? Do I just show up to work every day? Where am I going to make friends? Yeah. Um, you know, what are some goals that I have to shoot for? And I'm really grateful. Like, we get a lot of people here at Orchard Hill who have come here trying to answer those questions. Yeah, yeah. They meet another accountant and they can talk together about how exciting Excel is. Man, we seriously, we have a life group of young adults here that is like 50%, two thirds accountants. <laughs> there you go. That's a real like affinity a really group. Boring group. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's a couple things here that, that strike me. One is I think it's important that any church community does its best to help people connect. But there's also an organic nature to that that you can't totally facilitate or force. Uh, and what I mean by that is at some mm. level it becomes somebody's own decision yeah. about how much am I going to invest. And you either choose to invest somewhere or you don't. And if you choose to invest, you'll end up with community. If you don't, you won't. Mm. And it's, it's almost that easy. Mm. 
and I think um, certainly from a church leadership standpoint, we want to do everything we can to facilitate engagement and people being there. But but if somebody um, chooses not to, um, then that's that then that will be their choice. Yeah. And and that happens in all size churches again. That's true. I mean, you see it in small churches where people say, "Hey, I just come to the service. I like it. That's what I do." Yeah. You see it in a large church. And, and for some people, that's okay. They might feel like they have enough community other places. They may say, you know, that's, that's my act of worship. That's what I do. Um, yeah. But for other people, yeah, there's, there, there, there is that. And, and I guess what I'm saying is, is it's, you can structure it, but there's an organic side to it, but it really is a choice that each person makes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you guys think about this, but sometimes when it comes to the large church, small church conversation, I think it's easy for people in either size church when you're in a leadership position to say, man, I'm in a small church. Wouldn't it be awesome if I had a staff the size of a large church and I could have someone who just was full time paid to focus on youth or music (laughs) or plugging people into life groups, things like that. Oh, wow. What if we could produce this level of excellence in our worship arts? And then I think... Sometimes in large churches, we can think to ourselves, man, wouldn't it be nice to just have the simple church? If I didn't have to deal with all these people. Yes. <laughs> I mean, just the layers of complexity. I think right. it's either easy on either side to just look at the, the challenges that you're experiencing and the uh, things that might come a little bit more readily in a church of a different size and just kind of feel like the grass is a little greener on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Matt Chandler say once, if I ever leave my church, uh, Matt Chandler's a large church, uh, the village church pastor. He said, if I ever leave my church, it's not going to be because I had some moral fallout. It's going to be because I just thought, <clears throat> pardon me, I just thought to myself, man, wouldn't it be nice to pastor a church of 100 people and just know what was going on in people's lives? Because uh, as someone who's in a leadership role, you, you do feel yeah. a level of concern and responsibility and uh, care for the people that you serve. Yeah. And man, it can just be complex keeping track of everyone. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a good point, Joel. What um, uh, what do you see as the dangers of the whole house church movement? Are there dangers? Is that a positive movement? Uh, yeah. Uh, and because that's something now they call it micro church. I mean, it's certainly not new. It's been going on for generations. Where right. people say, "Let's gather, get rid of paid clergy. We'll all be volunteers." Um, we'll meet in a house. There's no overhead, no structure. Yeah. Um, we just get around, I'll share the word, sing a little bit, do life together and call it good. What, yeah. what, what do you see as positive, negative of that? I think there's uh, a sense in which, I mean, the church in, in many ways grew in people's houses. Like that was a significant part of the early church. Anyway, they weren't all house churches, but that was definitely a part of it. Um, I think also, there's this mindset when you're in it that like we are more biblical because the church that met in this person's house is you know what it says at the end of some of the epistles, right? Um, so so we're doing church the right way. We're not spending money on a building, and that anytime you have a chip on your shoulder in terms of how you're doing church, I think is a problem. Um, I think you know thinking back to my experience, um, there there was some really great things about it. I think that having uh having structure um creates accountability 
And, and that's where I guess I'd have a, a little bit of a concern. You know, we you know, certainly we've read about, you know, places like China where like the, the church has grown al- almost exclusively through house churches. And I would say, you know, it probably has to happen that way. Um, here, you know, if there was a house church movement, uh, I would say it'd be really appropriate for them to be networked in some way, for there to be some sort of oversight, um, to have, you know, multiple elders, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I guess those would be, those would be my concerns. Josiah, uh, what do you see? I think something that's really nice about a house church is it's, it's a pretty low bar for someone to come if they're not churched. If I'm inviting a friend of mine who doesn't know anything about Christian faith over to my house for dinner, and then I have some of my other Christian friends over, and we kind of transition into a time of Bible study or something, hmm. my friend who's not a believer could feel a little bit more comfortable in a, in a home environment than they would coming into a church building. Yeah, I see that as an advantage. But what I would really miss if my only church involvement was a house church is being in community with people who are totally different from me. Mm. Uh, I love being in a church where I'm talking with people and I'm like, man, if we weren't in you know this place together, there's no way our paths would cross. Mm. And that happens all the time you know, here at Orchard Hill. People, we have people here from all over the world, all different parts of the city. Yeah. People from blue collar professions, white collar, everywhere in between. Yeah. And it's really a meaningful thing to be able to look around a room and say, what do we have in common except for Jesus Christ? Probably nothing, but what's more important than the bond that we have in Jesus Christ? And so I think my concern about house churches is that people would just gather together with people who are like them. It would be a get together of friends uh, who shared faith rather than a place where people who are um, coming from all over different backgrounds are united together as one in Jesus because of what he has done. Yeah. And so can that be done in a house church? I think, I think there has to be a way, but uh, like we said, you know, there are different challenges for every form of church. And I think there are certainly challenges to the house church model. Yeah. Uh, I, my other concern is just about what happens to preaching in that setting. Like mm. th- there is a difference between preaching and sharing. Um, and my experience was, you know, it was exclusively sort of sharing, sort of Bible study leading, which is just different than preaching. Preaching carries with it some uh, sort of authority, um, more pre-planning. Um, and then just in addition to that, things can get real weird just through group think and just having a group of people that are making decisions together. Um, having authority that is... Um, that that is uh, people that are carefully selected that are um, seeing a bigger context than just right. There. I just see some some value in that. Yeah, I, I would um, I would echo those things. I think uh, there's one other thing that would be a concern for me, and certainly there are outliers and times when when this may not be the case. But again, back to the concern about doctrine for me. Um, and you'd expect me and maybe the three of us to all say this <laughs> because of seminary education, but I think having a seminary trained pastor is of value for a church community and to have all lay people, not that lay people can't interpret the Bible, not that there aren't lay people who would necessarily interpret it better or that there aren't seminary trained people who get it wrong. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I'm not saying that, but I think the value of that is still something that's worthwhile. And then elders and accountability. And I think in a, uh, you know, what the benefits of a house church 
all exist in a church small group ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so, but in that context, you have uh, doctrinal oversight. You generally will have a seminary trained pastor if the church believes in that. And, and maybe the way to think about it is this. If you were sick, um, you might be able to go to somebody who self-studied as a doctor, never went to medical school. And they might give you better advice than somebody who went to medical school. But more times than not, you want to go see somebody who went through the training. Hmm. Doesn't mean that they have it nailed down. They might give you the wrong advice, wrong treatment. But but there's a better chance that, that there's some somebody who studied it deeply and, and, you know, just having worked through the, the seminary education, there is something to the rigor of that study that prepares somebody to, to help spot air and to, to guide yeah. correctly. And so that would be a concern I would have with the, with the house church, microchurch movement of just saying, we just do our own thing. Um, we've got our own decisions. There is no doctrine, no no stated authority in terms of teaching yeah. uh, with that. So, mm-hmm. and again, I think you can get all the benefits of a house church thing through a church small group ministry. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's let's talk multi-site now um, because you know previously it was large church or small church. Now it's one church that is both large and small, and uh, and the idea behind the multi-site movement is you know a church that grows grows big some sometimes. Um, grows big, has some resources in terms of figuring out their model of ministry, uh, staffing, uh, all those sorts of things can then take take some of their resources and put it someplace and say, let's grow uh, an expression of the church there, um, which is what we've you know been playing with for the past uh, five or six years, uh, six years. And so my question then is this, um, what what's the what makes a church a church? Um, what are sort of the bare minimums, even thinking about house church, when does uh, a, a group of people that are having a Bible study together become a church? Mm. You know, I really appreciate this movement that has kind of developed in the last decade or so of churches multiplying, um, whether through church planting or adding multi-sites. It's really cool to see churches popping up in parts of the city where they weren't previously, yeah. because there are churches in our city who might have the resources to be able to say, let's extend our mission and multiply ourselves, our DNA, our mission into a place in this city that's not being reached. Yeah. And uh, it's really cool. We've done that in two different locations. And I know there are some other you know, great churches in our city who have done the same. Mm-hmm. I think that we see God-honoring worship taking place, You know, the, the preaching, teaching of the word. And we see community opportunities where people can come into relationships where they can be uh, you know, challenged with opportunities to understand who God is, wherever they are in their faith journey, and take steps of maturity and also be equipped to serve. And so when we see those things taking place, I'm really eager to, you know, see people come and be a part. Yeah. I know that we're always looking for more opportunities where we can allow that to come together in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. What do you see as somebody who's uh, obviously well, living inside the 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 world of that so i uh i'm i'm a fan of of how we do it um i think it's good i think you know the way we say is that we are one church orchard hill church in multiple locations and so orchard hill strip district is not is not a church that's different from orchard hill wexford um we're one church and i think that's the right way to do it um but for the sake of uh 
having an interesting conversation here. Um, I think that's it's just a semantics game to say we're we're one organization, yes, but um, but the question that I'm that I'm getting at here is what makes a church a church? You know, if the Apostle Paul walked into uh, our our Butler County Church one Sunday and and Brady explained to him like, oh, we're not we're we're one church along with this church in Wexford, this church in the Strip District. I feel like his head would explode and, and he'd say, you know, you do communion, you have preaching, uh, there's uh, at least one elder that's here. Um, you're a church, right? I mean, th- do you mm-hmm. disagree with that or? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I, so I didn't necessarily make that up. I mean, I, at some point it is semantic because right. I think multi-site done well your location should end up being a church. Hmm. The only difference is it's tied. Yeah. Probably. And um but I think if your locations don't pass the tests of church, which, you know, if you go back to um the reformers and some people, they'd say it's the right administration of communion, church discipline, um, not just communion the sacraments, uh faithful teaching of the words, some of those things. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean that that should all be there. Um so yeah, I I guess I'm not sure exactly where and it probably you're right, it goes to the house church thing. Yeah. Do, do you need multiple elders that are recognized? Um is that part of it? Um uh, but I, I don't know that you know, the issue with, with multi site, I mean, if we did multi site and had no video feed of any teaching, mm-hmm. um you wouldn't even question the whole thing, even though we're tied together by governance. Yeah. And so it really comes down in many ways to video teaching. Right. Um, and what is, how much is, is, is needed. And, and I really wasn't a fan of the idea of video teaching when this whole thing started, because it always felt arrogant to me. It was kind of like, like, um, the, you know, this person's so good that nobody else can deliver a message (laughs) in any other location. Um, and what we've seen is, as we've started to go is that there's something about the teaching that does tie a church together, yeah. having the same voice, that if you don't have that at some point, then you really aren't the same church. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's interesting, and I can say this from years of having taught, um, when you're in a small church, um, and even a medium-sized church, uh, you know so many people and their stories, and there's a beauty to that, mm. but there's also a hindrance to that in teaching and preaching. Huh. Because uh, when you stand up to teach, if you sat with somebody this week who, um, like, like I was just thinking about <clears throat> something, and I even want to be careful how I say it right now, because, yeah. <laughs> be, because you sit with somebody, you know the story, and then you're teaching on something five weeks later that has it, and you see the person sitting there, you have to be... Um, aware that they don't feel like you're standing there taking a shot at them mm. from the pulpit, uh, which is legitimate. And and I think there's something in the video that actually allows people, especially in a smaller church at times, to receive a a, a more direct challenge that sometimes when you're the, the site pastor or the on-site, it's harder to do. Yeah. Um, now, there's also a beauty to that. And that's why I think in some ways our model is is ideal because there's a sense in which you know the people in the Strip District, Brady knows the people in the in Butler County, I know some of the people here, just I know some of the people here, and, and so there's a there's a chance to do both and yeah um, with that and and I, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense to everybody, but there's 
there there is something to that that oh, it, sure. that, that is um, healthy. And I and I think what we've seen, not just at our church, but but nationally, even regionally, is that is that a lot of times people like that. I have somebody who cares for me, but isn't always the person delivering the message yeah. uh, in that moment. Yeah. Um, I want to hear from that person, but I also want a little distance. And and when you're in a smaller church, there's no distance. Mm. I mean, you talk about something, everybody's sitting there going, I wonder if he's referring to that person over yeah. there. And, uh, and that's where big actually sometimes feels better. Yeah. So when we think about sort of the mega church uh, thing that happened in like the what seventies eighties when it all began. It seems like the 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 maybe systemic uh, conflict that came out of that was turning church into this consumer sort of thing. Like churches became driven around, you know, just thinking, con- you know, these people are consumers. How do we give them what we want? When I think about the multi-site model, the thing that concerns me most, thinking systemically, is, and I've already expressed this to you. Is that so? Instead of you know, you look at a church with twelve campuses. Um, instead of twelve uh, church planners that are developing a gift of preaching, you have one guy who's already good at preaching, who's just preaching to a larger crowd. And we're not developing preachers, and we're not developing um, pastors to do some of the stuff that is you know farmed to the you know central services. Um, and and so I do appreciate our system for doing this where, you know, uh, our campus pastors at this point are on, you know, 25, 33% of the time. Um, and so it's not a load that's overwhelming so that we can spend time meeting people, uh, doing the stuff that we need to grow a a small church, but, um, but also still be developed in, in ways that are, that are helpful. Um, I really appreciate that about Orchard Hill as a church, you know, coming here, I was really surprised by how many times Kurt gave me opportunities to preach. (laughs) I was like, man, like you're really generous with those slots. And, uh, that's just been something that I've really appreciated because it's given me those opportunities to develop. And I see that that's true for a lot of our staff. And, uh, that's a choice that is made here. Yeah. And that's, that's really cool because in a big church, like you said, it can become a consumer mentality. And I know there are a lot of people who would say, oh, I come to this church because I love Kurt's teaching. Yeah. And rightly so. But I also appreciate that, you know, this is a church that values developing leaders for the future. And so that's a part of what we value here. Yeah. Um, the whole uh, consumer culture thing is something that, that, uh, that I think about a lot. And it's something I feel pretty passionately about. You know, people can come into the church and say, what is this place going to do for me? And I think that part of our role for as pastors is to recognize, you know what? The fact that people would come to this church as a consumer, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. I'm glad that they're going somewhere Interesting. and they're taking steps to learn. However, part of our role as leaders is to lead them to think bigger about what church is about and what their life could be like if they, if they showed up instead of saying, I'm here for myself to see what I can get, to bring them to a point where they would see the beauty of the gospel enough to say, man, my life would really take on a whole new level of meaning if I thought about what I could give to this community. And uh, oftentimes people really grow in their faith in a whole new way Mm -hmm. and even come to believe for the first time when they decide, I'm going to start participating in the mission rather than just showing up as a consumer. Yeah. Well, and and it's a false dichotomy. What what you hear a lot of times is people who are in smaller churches say, hey, we're missional. Mm. And big churches are attractional, attractional, bad, missional, good, Mm. um, that kind of thing. 
And it's just not true mm-hmm. because anywhere where you have a large church that's attractional, you have a ton of people who are incredibly missional, mm-hmm. who have mm-hmm. been for a long time and continue to be, or you can't function as a large church that's attractional. And anywhere you have any church, you have people who are consumers and people who who are part of that that process. And so it isn't, it's just a false dichotomy to mm-hmm. say it's one or the other uh, in terms of how church works. I mean, you can have a church of 50 people and half the people are consumers saying, yeah. what are you doing for me? Yeah. Um, and and you can have a church of two people and somebody can be a consumer. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. Don't we want to attract as many people as we can right. so we can... Lead well, them to faith, of, grow them, the and equip them to the be the missional. Day. That's right. So, so it all runs together. Yeah. All right. We need some rapid fire. Good questions. stuff. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Um, Josiah, you get to go first. Yes. Finish this sentence. The world would be a better place if everybody just drank more coffee. <laughs> Kurt drank more water. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I was going to say gave $2.75 to Wikipedia cuz I'm so sick of those banners. <laughs> now I want to say exercise cuz I'm a big exercise guy. Yeah? Yeah. I just love to I love to work out. I love the way that it helps me de-stress. Yeah. And have a clear mind. All right. I'm feeling guilty. Change right the now. answer. <laughs> uh, my real answer to that was uh, live within our means. Mm. So. That's a whole different level of wisdom than I brought to the table, Joel. <laughs> All right, Kurt, this one's to you. New Year's resolutions, should people make them? If they, if it helps, I'm sure. If they want to, I don't care. Make them, don't make them. Have you ever had a successful New Year's resolution? Um. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's... You know, it's a fine time to reflect on your life and say, what changes do I want to make and try to be intentional about stuff. Um, I do that not just at New Year's, but often. Mm. And it leads to being more intentional. Um, You know, Josiah just mentioned exercise. I do it around family time. I like to try to just assess where, how am I investing in my own marriage and my kids? Um, Am I... You know, and so sometimes it leads to to good actions. Um, I've probably never kept anything perfectly, and yeah. and there's a piece of me that says, you know, why try if you think you're going to fail? But then there's another piece that says, of course you want to improve your life. So yeah. so I think it's if somebody finds it helpful, great. If somebody says I don't want any part of it, yeah. that's good. The key is, or the real issue is, are you living intentionally? Are you hmm. are you doing what you want to do? You, you know the the danger i think in our culture is that is that we get run by the tyranny of what is in front of us hmm. and sometimes that's just i have to go to work i have to shop i have to do this project i need to get the kids here there and you get done with your day and you say wow i didn't exercise i didn't spend time with my spouse i didn't pursue God at all. I didn't serve anybody. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a meaningful conversation with a friend. I didn't do anything that was joyful. I didn't uh, spend any time having a heart to heart with any of my kids. Mm. And, and just right there, you have a huge to-do list, uh, which is overwhelming, but, but if you're not intentional and then I think what's, what's even more damaging is so many people are so tired at the end of the day that what is default is, 
let me see what I can watch. And binge watching right. has actually made that worse because now you feel more intentional in your watching mm. than it used to be when it was like, oh, there's nothing on. Uh, now it's like, oh, I can find something that's really pretty good that yeah. I want to watch that's, yeah. that, that feels good. And, and, but, but you feel at least to me, it, it's, I mean, it's fine to binge watch too, but, but when you have all these other priorities that can just, you can just yep. find yourself going through a month of life and before you know it, you haven't done the things that are most important to you. So yeah, yeah that's a long there's, answer to a rapid fire question. There's more content that we can enjoy than we'll ever possibly have time Absolutely. to enjoy. And you got to be willing to say, I'm going to be intentional here. What about you? Any uh, yeah. good New Year's resolutions that I you've love, kept or broken? <laughs> yeah, I love the new year as a time to refocus. Mm. I think the mistake that we culturally often make, I know I can make this mistake personally, is my New Year's resolutions are just focused on self. Mm. Um, I love to encourage people to make a New Year's resolution focused on God and others. Yeah. And uh, this year, I wouldn't have called it a resolution, but myself and two buddies made a commitment at the start of this year that every morning, five days a week, uh, we would read the same chapter of Scripture, and then we would take a picture of it with our phones and text it out to one another with, oh, a, nice. with a little thought that stuck out to us. <clears throat> it has been a game changer for my consistency in my devotional life. Hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes I've I've really, you know, buckled down, but we all have periods of inconsistency. But when there are three of us who are all committed to, you know, keeping each other accountable in that way, man, it's just so helpful. It's yeah. been really life-giving. It's totally deepened those relationships in my walk with God. Huh. And so uh, I'm really grateful that we made that commitment together. And, you know, we're going to keep that going round two, 2020. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. cool. Yeah. How about you? What do you think about that? Um, you know, I read a, uh, a book on timing uh, a couple years ago, a year ago, and it just talks about how important it is to to look at the timing in, um, you know, st starting a job, ending a job, starting the years, you know, all these sorts of things and taking advantage of those. And so I've always made a habit of just sort of spending some time reflecting. Um, we do a, a strip district men's retreat every year. And I think it's so powerful just to give people an opportunity to step back and evaluate, um, their spiritual life. And so, yeah, I've, I've always made them. I've not always kept them. Um, but uh, I've generally found it helpful to me. So, so the, the religious part of me, that's very like task driven, um, always wants to like prove myself through them, but, mm -hmm. but it's, it's actually, you know, sometimes it's refreshing to look back and say, I didn't keep that goal. And, uh, and that's mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Well, it's where spiritual life and exercise are good analogies. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, most people at some point in their life decide to exercise somehow. Uh, some people go through life. I think you might be one of them who just naturally doesn't have to exercise. But, uh, but, um, Most of us are jealous. Uh, you know, um, because, uh, I mean, the man eats ice cream every night, beer every night. It looks like that. But, um, you know, maybe not every night. But, not every you know, night. Um, <laughs> the, um, for most of us, we say, oh, you know, I need to exercise. And, and there are days I get up and it's like, I can't wait to exercise. I, I, want, I look forward to it. And then there are days where you say, I don't want to do that today. I want to skip it. And, but it's the discipline of it that is not, um, it's not, um, legalistic. It's, it's, I want the benefits and the good things that come from it, that, that it's in the discipline that you actually find what it is you're looking for. And, yeah. and I think sometimes when it's spiritual, like we get that with exercise, but when it's spiritual, we tend to think, oh, that's legalistic. I shouldn't have to ever feel a should or this or that. And, and the truth is, like, you know, Josiah's morning devotion uh, discipline, 
there's probably mornings where you think I would rather just skip it and just get stay it, on my get Google news. My yeah. And yeah. And, and yet that discipline turns out to be where you find connection in life. And so, yeah, I, I think that's true with all disciplines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. I did when I was uh, doing student ministry go 365 days in a row of eating ice cream and taking a picture and cataloging it on Instagram. Oh my God. I did, I did it. not know that. I missed one day. I was out of the country. <laughs> what an impressive and, uh, streak. That is. wasn't available. That's how so. I knew you did so much ice cream, but oh I didn't realize God. you did it 365 oh, yeah. days, like literally. And I have I uh, picture evidence of them. All right. That's all we got. Uh, send your questions to ask a pastor at orchardhillchurch.com. We'd love to either dive deep or throw it into the rapid fire and uh, get some questions answered. Thanks, guys. Thanks.